Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Heavenly Father, uh, your word is good for us, and we have work to do today um, to see the heart of it and to apply it to our lives. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit um, fill us with uh, a sense of wonder at the beauty that is in this text uh, and give us in that wonder uh, the application to apply it in areas of our life that perhaps we do not yet see the significance of. And we pray all this for your glory in your name. Amen. Twas brillig in the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe all mimsy were the borough groves and the mome wraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite and the claws that snatch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the fruminous bandersnatch. Who knows, without looking at the manuscript, what I'm quoting from anybody? So close. It's so written by the guy who wrote Through the Looking Glass, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, that is Lewis Carroll. This is his poem, Jabberwocky. If you studied it in college or high school literature, it's probably because it's famous because it's a poem about nonsense. It's made up words in a made up place with a plot that doesn't make sense. And I don't claim to know where most of you are in terms of uh, your understanding of scripture. That's not true. I'm the pastor who knows many of the members. I know where many of you are, uh, but I do not know where some of you are in terms of your conversion to Christianity, your understanding of scripture, or your walk with Jesus. But I don't think it takes a special sort of prophet uh, to say that many of you, upon hearing the text Devin just read for us, might as well have been reading Jabberwocky. It's nonsense. There's a crazy mind teaser in the opening. There's some statement uh, about there being no marriage or spouses in heaven. It seems the only time we're all single as a church is opening weekend of hunting season and in glory. We read about dead people rising, a king who's not a lord, but a son that's a lord over a king. It sounds crazy. And in Luke's narrative, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and is facing uh, three challenges lobbed at him by the religious officials. And today we get to the third and final one. And we might think that having, you know, uh, perfectly defeated the first two challengers, Jesus is a little weary, he's a little tired cloudy in the brain in answering this question, because what he's talking about is, is, is really profound. He's not merely talking about some sort of eternal spiritual life. He's talking about dead bodies becoming alive, coming out of the grave with a physical life. He's not saying that death will one day just be done with. He's saying that death will be undone. Think about that when you stand in a cemetery, that those bodies will one day rise. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's not some metaphorical resurrection, but then as if that isn't stunning enough, he goes on to poke at one of the most cherished idols across human history, marriage, intimacy, and sex. Yeah, you'll have a body, but there'll be no marriage or marital intimacy. I remember talking with a dear older saint once, who told me um, about her husband who passed away uh, many decades ago. And she said, can you believe that my pastor at that time told me that we won't be married in heaven? And while I might argue at the bedside manner of that pastor in that moment in time, 
she was surprised to find out that the Bible does in fact promote that to be true. Christian or not, this sounds like nonsense and is surprising to most of us, even though, as one was pointed out to me at staff meeting this week, that for centuries, Christians in their marriage vows have included the phrase, till death do us part. And it's shocking to us. We don't know what to do with it. It doesn't fit. And that leads us to our main point today. And that is that eternal life, or resurrection life, as we see as the main subject here in this text, is a present challenge, but a forever joy. While the doctrine of eternity and a world yet to come challenges our sense of immediacy in the world that is, by the end of this passage, we will find that the joys of resurrection life make the greatest joys of this world seem like nonsense. And Jesus is going to help us make that transition in the text today by adjusting our vision in three distinct ways. First, in dealing with the nature of marriage, he's going to move our relational hope from being spouses to being siblings. And then he's going to talk about a God who has the power to move us from death to life. And then lastly, in speaking of the nature of himself as the Lord's Christ, our understanding of salvation needs to move from being centered in a human son, to being centered in an eternal savior. And we meet in this third and final challenge of the religious officials in Luke's narrative, a new challenger today, the Sadducees. There's much we can learn about the Sadducees, but Luke assumes you don't know anything and he gives you exactly what you need to know. And that is that the Sadducees we see are those who deny the resurrection. And so in contrast to the Pharisees, the other religious group among the Jews, uh, these people believe that there is no eternal life, much less any hope of an eternal of a physical bodily resurrection. And to be honest, most Christians live like Sadducees. We often ignore or don't think about eternity because we can't actually fathom a world or a joy that's better than this world or these joys. And for the Sadducees, the challenge they brought to Jesus is the same challenge many of us have to grapple with when we're walking with Jesus. And that's how the hope of eternal life the hope of resurrection life, could make sense of our longing for the things of this world, namely, in this instance, human intimacy in a husband and a wife. Can it get better than it is right now? Can it get better than sitting on a seashore on on your honeymoon with your soulmate? If that's potentially lost, then is it good at all? And so the issue they bring up is an issue uh, called leveret marriage, And in the ancient Near East, if there were a man and a wife, and the man died and left the widow without any children, uh, it was a really big issue. Physically speaking, this woman would be exposed uh, to great physical and economic hardship. She would have very little standing across the ancient Near East as a whole. And then in addition to that, her husband, like the tribal line not able to produce offspring, would not only diminish someone's capacity to physically care for her, but it actually threatened the overall health of the nation. If all the 12 sons of Israel died without leaving any sons, Israel goes away. The nation suffers. So there was both individual and corporate well-being involved in the issue of a woman who is a widow without children. Now God and his law was remarkably and remains to be one of the most pro-women legislative acts 
in all of human history. Knowing this, God prescribed to his people in Deuteronomy 25 something called leveret marriage. And the principle was this. If the deceased brother has another brother who meets two qualifications, one, he is unmarried himself, and B, it says he is near. So he is relationally responsible uh, enough in that sphere that that brother would then take his deceased brother's widow as his wife. This would care for the physical and economic well-being of the widow by providing her a husband who could go and he could earn income and he could provide safety. But it would also preserve the heritage of the deceased husband and therefore the nation itself because uh, it had rules regarding the offspring. And so from this new union, any children born to them would bear the name and the lineage of this new husband. But the firstborn male of that union would bear the name of the deceased husband so that there would be a promise and a heritage for the full nation of Israel without being diminished. And this is what we see when we read the book of Luke. It's the beautiful love story of Boaz as a former, or as a, as a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ, who takes Ruth, who is widowed and without hope and redeems her at great cost to himself. And so to our modern minds in thinking about this, this might seem repressive and oppressive, but it was so incredibly caring and empowering at that time that if this brother-in-law refused to fulfill his obligations as a kinsman redeemer, the widow would take this man to the gates of the city, which is like the town square, and she would call the elders and she would say, this man's not fulfilling his duty, and they would inquire And if he still refused to perform his duty, having met the qualifications of being unmarried and near to this woman, then the woman would get to pull his sandal off of his foot, slap him across the face, and spit on him. And no joke, this is why we read the Bible, no joke, that man's last name to the whole city now would be called him who had his sandal pulled off. It was the most shameful and uncaring, selfish thing anyone could do to not care for the widow and to care for the nation in accepting this. And so the principle was extremely common in Israel. The hypothetical situation that these Sadducees bring to Jesus trying to trick him was not. It's the equivalent of the first-year philosophy student asking his teacher if God can make a rock so big he can't move it. They think they got him, but it's just a dumb idea. And so they bring this to God, and, or they bring this to Jesus, who is God, good theology, and they ask him this question in verse 28, saying this, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers The first took a wife and died without children. So they go on to say this happened for all the subsequent brothers. And then the woman herself dies. And in verse 33, here's the big challenge. The peace, the resistance of their argument. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For seven had her as a wife. And so the basic premise, again, is is that the Sadducees mind teaser is meant to show that the doctrine of resurrection life is incompatible with the realities of human existence. It can't solve the human problem. If we get there, whose wife is she going to be? She doesn't, she can't be divided seven times, eight times. What do we do with this? 
But Jesus shows that their question misunderstands two things. One, it misunderstands the purpose of marriage. And two, it misunderstands the resurrection. Their hope for eternity to be joyful, for resurrection life to be truly life-giving, was that they would have a hypothetical spouse. But Jesus places their hope not in a spouse, but in being a son of the resurrection. And this is our first point today, where Jesus moves us from spouses to siblings. Jesus does not try to untangle the sticky wicket of leveret marriage, of asking who is married longer, or who did she seem to love most, or who left her alone in church on hunting Sunday least often, all those things. He instead focuses on the complete transition of marriage, that it is in a divine mystery in the age to come dissolved. He says this in verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, or resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So you'll notice last week, Jesus talked about um, authority, and he gave authority an expiration date. And here, he talks about marriage in the same sense. Marriage is caught between two ages, this age and the age to come. Marriage itself, therefore, has an expiration date. In the age to come, it's not there. Now, it's not that kind of like milk you leave in the the fridge long enough, it sours and becomes distasteful, and we need to get rid of it. Marriage was given by God. We're going to look at that in just a moment. It was good. It was wonderful. It was perfect. But instead, marriage goes away as a bud gives way to a flower, or as a scaffolding ultimately gives way to the whole building when it is finished. God has so designed marriage for a similar use in this age. For a time, it has a dynamic and a significant and an exclusive role. But one day, in the age to come, it becomes absorbed into the larger building, no longer to be seen or to provide a structure which it has grown out of. And so to understand this, we need to give just a brief theology of marriage. We're going to do some work here, so, so, so pay attention with me. If you get lost, go pick up a manuscript, um, and, and, but don't worry about it, because we need to understand the purpose of marriage if we want to understand what Jesus is talking about here. And to understand marriage, we have to understand the, nation, or the notion of humanity. This brings us all the way back to the first page of Scripture. In Genesis 1:27, we read about the creation of man and woman, and it says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So we see God's creative act to create a them, a male and a female in the image of God. In other words, marriage is not essential to image bearing. It's not the center of any of our identities. Yet, God has so specifically designed us to be male and female with all the potential plumbing one would need to be together as male and female in marriage. In God's mercy, this was for two reasons. Partly for fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply. Produce offspring. But it was also for relational joy. God says to Adam, about Adam in his single state, it was not good that man should be alone. 
And so marriage comes into each of these things, to both purpose and to pleasure. Speaking to purpose, Genesis 2.24 holds everything together. He says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so, so far, what we see in God's original creation in a world where sin was not yet present, that uh, Adam and Eve were specifically commanded as the first man and the first woman to be married, and this was expected as the norm for the rest of human history, for the foreseeable future. And what was patterned is what we confess to be true today in our church. If you come to our membership class, you see this when we talk about the doctrine of humanity, that Men and women are made in the image of God. That marriage was between a man and a woman for the sake of relational intimacy and for the sake of procreation. It was the public formation of the family. One would leave a family and start a new one. And it was sealed and symbolized by the one flesh union of sexual intimacy. That's what we see about marriage and institution. Now, sin came in Genesis 3, and it complicated, didn't ruin, complicated all of this. You'll notice the first thing Adam did when he saw Eve is he burst into song. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Probably could have used some wordsmithing, but there was no one else around who's going to blame him. But then what happens after sin is the same husband who sang of her beauty throws her under the bus. He says, the woman you gave me... She gave me that, and the tune changed to 2000's emo real quick. And then what happens is we see that since that moment, sin has complicated our humanity. Sin has complicated our understanding of gender roles. Sin has complicated our view of marriage and of family. Complementary gender roles are now contested battlegrounds in the home. Marriages are often worshipped as God, we seek spouses to be saviors. Sex is detached from relational commitment and unity and made about oneself and not about a union between two. Childbearing always includes physical pain, so I've heard. And often, even the deeper emotional pain of miscarriages, barrenness, stillborns. But despite this, In all of its trials, marriage is still a noble and worthwhile means that God has given to his church as a gift. That was the expectation all through the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes around in the New Testament, we see that he is broadening some of those categories of both purpose and of pleasure. What seemed to be exclusive to marriage between a man and a woman in the Old Testament is made plural by Jesus in regards to the New Testament church. That is to say that you single brothers and sisters in here, that while you might not have the experience of a marriage between you and another human, you do not miss out on the essential joys or privileges of marriage in terms of its purpose and of its pleasure. The Lord has called married couples to be fruitful and multiply, a command we take very seriously apparently at this church, But he's also called the church to do the same thing. While most marriages produce babies, the church always produces disciples. It's a promise that Jesus himself stands behind. In Matthew 28, when speaking to the church that was about to go to the nations, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Our purpose in serving Jesus is not wrapped up exclusively in procreation. But we find our purpose in the church as also making disciples, spiritual disciples, not from the union of flesh and flesh, but from the union of the gospel, which is spirit and the humans that the gospel redeems. But neither does our pleasure live in the bounds of marriage. You know, there are two places where the Bible speaks clearly of two becoming one or the plural becoming the singular. The first is in Genesis 2, where we just saw that the two will leave, or the wife will leave her father and her mother, and they'll become one flesh. That's the first. The second is when Paul talks about the participation believers have with one another through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of the radical and real sense of intimacy we share when we take the Lord's Supper, which we do every first Sunday here at the church. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, he says this. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of that one bread. In marriage, two are made one through sex. And in the church, the many are made one by the one bread, Jesus Christ, who nourishes us and brings us together as the family of God. It is not a different intimacy. It is the same intimacy experienced through a different means, through Christ and the church. So marriage sets an exclusive and physical pattern for God's plan. That's what we saw in the Old Testament. It was exclusive between a man and a woman and a physical plan to be fruitful and multiply. But the church sets a plural and spiritual pattern of God's plan. And that's why Jesus is able to give an expiration date for marriage here. And you see this in verse 35, where Jesus says that they are no longer given in marriage because they cannot die anymore. Marriage goes away because people can't die. So what is he saying by that? He's saying that disciple making and baby making cease in the age to come. Why? Because we no longer need the physical act of creating more of God's people, nor do we need the spiritual act of converting more of God's people. God's got all of his people. He has gathered his saints from the whole earth. He is pleased. He has saved those who he would save. He has completed his plan. The whole family is there. There's no home alone, and God numbered the people getting on the bus, bus, but left somebody. It's all there. God has done it all. Augustine puts it this way. He says, for there shall be no generation in the place to which regeneration shall have brought us. Now, when I get to heaven, and we know this from looking at the rest of scripture and what it says about our experience in the age to come, uh, read what the Bible says about the age to come more than you read about what people who perhaps have died and come back to life say about the age to come. Okay, this is what is ultimately true. That might be helpful, but this is where we get our theology, okay? Um, And so when we get to heaven, just looking at scripture, I will know Sarah. I won't not know her. I'll have deep affection for her. I will, in fact, know her as my spouse here on earth. I imagine I will have a unique sense of understanding of Sarah that perhaps you don't have. But there's one big transition that Jesus holds up here 
and also in Matthew and in Mark. And that is that I will not know her in an exclusive or a possessive way. That's really the nature of the Pharisee's question. Do you see that? Whose wife will she be? In other words, to whom will she belong? Who gets her? Who has the exclusive right to her? Because sex and marriage went together in this life on earth, marriage by necessity to protect the one flesh union, to care for the family, and to glorify God, demanded exclusivity in the bounds of marriage. That's to say, Sarah is my wife, and I am her husband. I am not your husband, and she is not your wife. She belongs to me, and I to her. But when the need for exclusive procreation is dissolved in glory, there shall be no generation in the place that regeneration has brought us, the need for possessive, intimate, marital love is also dissolved. We will love one another perfectly, communally, together, and without sex. Jabberwocky. (laughs) That's what the world says to this, right? We can't fathom a world where there is love and intimacy, but no sex. Furthermore, we've seen the documentaries about the cults that try to dissolve marriage. What ultimately happens is that it becomes this humanity-distorting sexual plurality where no one belongs to anybody and you could sleep with whom you want to sleep because there is no marriage anymore. But that's because they're trying to take this one thing that God made exclusively and purposefully and they're trying to broaden that as if that is the essence of love and intimacy. But what if, which is true, by God's design, there is something better than sexual possessive love between a man and a woman in marriage? God gave C.S. Lewis a wonderful gift of language. And he also gave him a wonderful gift and a desire to think well about heaven. And some of his stuff didn't make it in Narnia because we won't read it to our kids if it did. This is one of them. Regarding a sexless heaven, he gave an illustration. He said, imagine you're talking to a boy and you tell him that the sexual act is the highest of all bodily pleasures. And he looks and his question is, well, will will there be chocolate? Because to the boy, that's the highest of all bodily pleasures. And so therefore, if sex is the highest, then there must be chocolate. And why does he ask that? Because he gets it. He's tasted it. He knows it. He couldn't imagine that he would ever want something or want a world where there was no chocolate simultaneously. And he goes on to say this, of how you would maybe try and communicate to him. He says, in vain, you would tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing in which heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, and then speaking of us who are tentative uh, to, to desire a heaven with no marriage, he says this, hence where fullness awaits, we anticipate fasting. 
For many of us, Jesus' words are nonsense because just as a boy cannot imagine pleasure greater than chocolate, we cannot imagine intimacy greater than sex. But as we see, as Jesus continues to unfold this, sex is nonsense compared to what is ours in the age to come. And so there's two really quick points of application here before I move on. First, spouses, kiss your spouse today. The, The dissolving of marriage does not lead us to despair or disinterest. It leads us to rejoice for what God has given to us now and actually use that as the wind that carries the affection of our worship to the source of marriage, which is Christ himself. Second to the single, take heart. Marriage is not the eternal place of purpose or of pleasure. Set an example for the rest of us and remind us that happiness is not equal to honeymoons and rejoicing is not reliant upon wedding bells. Now, the unique role of a preacher is that I get to stand up here and tell married people that you won't be married in glory, and I get to tell single people that you'll be singled in glory. And so I'm nobody's real friend right now. Um, and it, as, as one author put it, he said, the only call of God that Western Christians fear more than the call to missions is a call to a life of celibacy. But here Jesus just called all of, in, all of us into that eternally. However, in doing so, he has reframed for us the most significant relationship, which brings us not only into eternal life, but eternal life worth living. You'll notice that the Sadducees thought that in order for heaven to be heavenly, Jesus had to make us spouses. But instead, he moved our hope from being a spouse in order to enjoy eternity to being a son in order to enjoy eternity. Intimacy with a spouse or any other person for that matter is wildly insignificant when it comes to eternity because it cannot solve the problem of death. But to be a son of God by faith in Jesus Christ is to be what Jesus shows us here, is to be a son of the resurrection. Spouses won't raise anyone from the dead. Therefore, no spouse can solve your greatest problem. But those who are called children of God by faith in God's own son are raised from the dead. And here's our second point this morning, where Jesus introduces us to a God who's able to fix problems that spouses can't. That is a God who moves us from death to life. Consider again Jesus' words, his argument in verse 37 through 38, where he turns to the issue of the dead being raised. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus' argument here is very simple, and it goes like this. When God spoke to Moses and talked about a bunch of dead guys, he was affirming that there is life after death. Dead people don't need a God. A God of dead people is not a thing at all. You know who needs a God? Living people. Living people get gods. Therefore, when God is affirming that he is the God of those who have passed away by the worldly standards, he is affirming that he is a God of the living. Even those who have passed away are not dead, but they live present with the Lord and they too are awaiting a future resurrection. This might sound hard for us to understand because it's so simple and the argument basically goes like this. If he's God, then he does God things. If he's God, he can raise the dead. And see, the the irony of the Sadducees' argument here is that 
while attempting to trap Jesus in this like bigger problem of whose wife will she be, where will we have marriage and intimacy, they record nine deaths. Nine deaths, and they come away with a problem of who gets to be married. This is adventures in missing the point. And yet our hearts do this all the time. If God is strong enough to raise the dead to life, don't you think he's strong enough to sort out the rest? As if who you're going to fall in love with is of bigger interest than your heart having entirely decayed, (laughs) being non-existent. Do you really think that having brought dead people to life and furnished them with resurrection bodies, he's going to be befuddled by their relational life and their petty squabbles? Since page three of human history, death has been inevitable. Apart from Jesus' gracious return in this age, it is present for all of you. This hand will be in a casket someday. And so too will yours. And despite our efforts, despite cryo chambers and cancer drugs and clinical research and genetic coding, we cannot reverse death. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, died again. But there came a man who died, who rose, and never since has died. His name is Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is not an anomaly He is the first fruit of what will be everyone's reality. He is the pattern that will be true for all of us who have hope in Jesus. In fact, C.S. Lewis himself says that we never meet with a mere mortal, but we only encounter eternal souls. A physical resurrection church is not only for God's saints. Even those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus will be given a physical body so that they for all eternity in their body, will feel the weight of their sins in conscious punishment. At the end, everyone gets a body. And there'll be those who by faith are judged to life and those by their rejection of Jesus will be judged to condemnation. But the sons of the resurrection, Jesus is assuming the positive here in verse 38. Those who are sons of God are those who live before God in the next. You see this in verse 38. Because they all live to him now in this life. You see, if the believer's hope for life is in a God who raises the dead, a God who's that strong, that powerful, that big, then must we also by necessity believe that the believer's happiness is also in the God who raises the dead? Expecting the primary joys of heaven to be more of man is to go to Disneyland and expect the joy to be something other than Disney. It's to go to the Super Bowl and be discontent at how little pickleball is there. (laughs) Or to put it in an allegory fitting for this text, it's like getting married and not expecting the beautiful union of love to be satisfying. It's cutting out the source of joy. We were made to live for God, to live to God, and to be with him forever. The problem is our sin has separated from that. And like the Sadducees, we're often blinded to how God can satisfy us because we cannot see in our mere limited sense how that which is mortal can ever find peace in that which is divine. In any sort of glorious, beautiful, soul-satisfying union, it seems incompatible not only to what we see in this world, but actually to what we know in our own hearts. But in Jesus, we see it. 
We see the union of the divine and the human. And Jesus now turns to the scribes here, beginning in verse 39, who affirm Jesus's words on the resurrection because they believe it in contrast to the Sadducees. But the problem Jesus points out with them is that belief in resurrection life is nothing if you don't understand the source of resurrection life. Belief in resurrection life is nothing if you deny the Savior who is the source of resurrection life. And Jesus now begins to talk about the Christ, which is the, the, the Old Testament term for the Messiah. And just like the Sadducees couldn't accept a hope bigger than humanity, the scribes are in the exact same boat. They were too tied. They also were tied to a human hope, that of a merely human Messiah. They thought the Messiah, being from the line of David, would be a mere man, and therefore salvation would look like salvation according to man. We've seen Jesus talk about this often in the book of Luke. That's not coming in the way you expect. If you look through the eyes of man, you're going to miss everything, because God's plans are bigger than our plans. But Jesus now leans into the linchpin of everything in this whole text. He leans into the linchpin of everything when he moves the messianic identity from that of being merely a human son to being an eternal savior. That's our third and final point, from human son to eternal savior. Again, Jesus' argument is simple, but this is one of the most profound and deep texts critics and commentators can find in scripture. Turning to the scribes, he begins to quote from the Old Testament. Jesus says this, he says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he son? So here he's talking about King David, the one through whom the messianic promise has come, who was alive thousands of years prior to this. And here he is saying that David's acknowledging that he's not just a son, that he has to be Lord. So he's quoting Psalm 110. You could go look at Psalm 10 uh, later on this week. You'll notice it's written by David but it's not written uh, autobiographically like many of David's psalms. He's kind of like this viewer and he's viewing a royal ceremony. And it begins, as we see here in this text, of him um, narrating what's happening between the Lord, Yahweh, and someone who David says is my Lord. So there's Yahweh, who is the Lord, and there's also another Lord who David says is my Lord. And if you read the rest of the psalm, we see in verse two that that my Lord, David's Lord, is given the scepter of the kingdom. So here is David's true heir. But also we see in verse four that this king is of eternal nature. He is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So in essence, David himself is saying that Messiah is not just going to be a man, but he is pre-existent. He already exists. And he exists in verse four forever. He is eternal. In other words, the Messiah is not only David's son, but he is David's eternally existing God who is both priest and king who will be his son in the flesh. And look at how Paul presents this very thing in Romans. Paul is opening his book and he's telling us what is the substance of the good news? He says it this way. He says it's the good news of Jesus who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And so here, this theme of resurrection grabs this text. We're not done with that doctrine yet. 
And so Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the one who was raised from the dead, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So there is both pleasure and purpose. To be an apostle is to be sent out, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so in the virgin birth of Jesus, we see Jesus as son of David in the flesh. He was fully man. But in the resurrection of Jesus, he is vindicated as also being the son of God, fully divine. The purpose of that is to call us to what? Obedience of faith. One of the biggest problems we have in this world is understanding how sinful humans can be made right with God. That, more than anything else, contributes to your existential paranoia about joy. For real. How finite mortal humans can enjoy infinite eternal things is at the heart of all of our paranoia surrounding joy and pleasure. We don't know how we can be satisfied like that, so what do we do? We look at man's world seeking that which can eternally satisfy We cannot just find things that we enjoy. We must find things we enjoy eternally. You not only want a spouse, what do you want? A soulmate. You not only want a vacation, you want something that enraptures our entire ethos of who we are and carries us away. The problem is is that we stare at a world looking for a God and he's not there. But brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, God became man. And he walked among us and he showed us what it means to live to God. He showed us the heart and the hope of those who hope to find reconciliation between that which is fleeting and finite and that which is endlessly eternal and satisfying. It's only Jesus as the perfect man, only Jesus in his glorious resurrection that we know what it means to not only be saved, but to be satisfied. Jesus as the divine man solves the problem of sin because Jesus died for our sins. God didn't need to die, man needed to die. So that by faith, we might be risen up not to eternal judgment, but to eternal life by righteousness of Christ. In this Messiah, everything in Psalm 110 would come true. Everything was going to be made right. The scepter would be given to the king who cannot lose an election vote. Enemies would be subjected forever and peace would flourish. Death itself would begin to look dumb. That's the salvation we have through this God-man, Jesus Christ. But more than that, it also satisfies the problem of intimacy and joy because through faith in Jesus Christ, we are restored to God, the only eternal joy. Humanity is redeemed through the Christ. What are we redeemed to? To God himself. We say the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. In a slightly more difficult but far more beautiful way, in the sixth century, the church said this in the Athanasian Creed, They said, Jesus, although he is God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. That is one Messiah, one Savior. One, 
not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by assumption of manhood into God. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the purpose of God's Messiah was not only so that God would become flesh, but it was that what was flesh would be restored to God. When Jesus took on flesh, he showed us that humanity is significant. It is part of our essential image-bearing task, living, breathing, eating, marrying, relating. All of that is good, but it is not the end for which we were made. Jesus did not take on flesh so that God could enjoy barbecue. Jesus did not take on flesh because he's like, I just really want to dip my toes in the sand. Jesus did not take on flesh so God could enjoy what is human. Jesus took on flesh and the cross associated with it for your sins so that humans, by grace, can enjoy God. Brothers and sisters, we have much to sing about in the gospel. If you want eternal joy, you better make sure your joy is eternal. If you want to enjoy something endless, you better make sure it's at least a day older than you. Christ is preeminent, preexistent, satisfied in the Trinity for all eternity. Augustine, who strived, beating his head against the wall forever to find satisfaction in this world, finally was broken, and he said this. He says, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till we come to thee. Humanity was made to find its joy in Christ and what sin has torn asunder, Christ has restored. Why does human marriage go away? Because the shadow is swallowed up by the sun. Paul speaks of the mystery of marriage in Ephesians 5.32 and he says this. He says, this mystery of marriage is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and to the church. Brothers and sisters, here is our hope. On one existential level, you will not always have a spouse, but you will always have the church. Let that be mindful of how you view this body. Let that be mindful of why we take membership seriously, why we want you to enjoy the foretaste of heaven, which is here for you, plurally, regardless of your relational status. I encourage you, if you want to know more about that, to come on the 29th. But more than that... In eternity, you will always have a groom. For you will always have Jesus. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it this way. When we talk about the befuddling lack of our loved ones being married to us in heaven, he says this. He says, it's not that we have loved them too much, but that we did not quite understand what we were loving. It is not that we shall be asked to turn from them so dearly familiar, that's our spouses, to a stranger, When we see the face of God, we shall know we have always known it. In other words, every joy we encounter in this world, when we see Jesus, we see that that was it. He's the end of all those joys. At the end of every experience in this world is Jesus as our joy, which allows us to throw away idols, to throw away the passions of the flesh and enjoy that which endures forever. You may think that in looking at this, that the resurrection life is a sort of undressing of what is human, that we are less than human there. But do you realize that the Bible actually holds up that the resurrection life is becoming the most human? It is being further clothed. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, 
Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what is life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. All the joys of this world, all of the pains of what we have and what we lack are meant to give us that which is ours in Jesus Christ. It's meant to call us to a further redemption of humanity that cannot come through marriage or through retirement or through knee replacements. It can only come through the veil of death when those who are saved by grace are brought to life by the righteous power of Jesus Christ and given a resurrection body for all eternity. Do not worship what the filter of death will catch but worship the one who punched death in the teeth and satisfies us eternally. The question is not, can God's beauty account for the joys of humanity? That's a dumb question. He made us. The question you need to answer is, can your humanity account for the joy of God? Brothers and sisters, in your sin, it cannot. You are the petulant toddler who refuses to eat at the table. But in Jesus Christ, He opens our eyes. He changes our palate so that we can enjoy that which truly satisfies in him. One author puts it this way. He says, in truth, we will be uninterested in sexuality in heaven, not because it is atrophied, but because it is engulfed. Dear Christian, today, look at the joys of this world, those which you presently have and those which distress you that you do not have, but assess it in light of what the Messiah has done to restore you to God. Humanity is satisfied in the divine because the divine plan was satisfied in the divine son. The doctrine of resurrection is a present problem. No sex, no marriage, jabberwocky. How can it be? But when we get to glory and we see Christ for who he is, when our life appears the things of this world will grow strangely dim as we behold not only that which gives us life, but him who satisfies our life. Let's pray. Lord, you have given amazing gifts in this world. And it is the righteous obligation of the Christian to enjoy them. In the taste of honey, we see the sweetness of God and it leads us to worship. In the size of the mountains surrounding our city, we summit them at great toil only to find that faith can move a mountain. And we see the power and earth-changing weight of faith that glaciers and floods cannot touch. In intimacy, we enjoy union with one another and pleasure associated with it, but it is nothing compared to the intimacy sinners have with an infinite God through the work of the Son. So Jesus, move our palates upward. Call us to you. Give us, on one hand, a keen enjoyment for the gifts we have in this age, but may it be to the end that we throw it all away for what is ours in the age to come 
That though we will enjoy Christ distinctly purified from sin in a resurrected body then, we have the same Christ now. We have the same union now. We have been one and wed to the church in Jesus Christ now. So Lord, make us joyful people now. We pray all this in your name. Amen.